If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. All right, welcome back, beautiful humans. This is Erin. And it's Denisha. So glad that you all can join us for another episode. We've got another special guest um, waiting for uh, for us to interview and have a, have a chat with. So, uh, But as always, first, before we do that, we're just going to check in with each other. So um, I don't know. I feel like I haven't. It's like two weeks have gone by. I haven't I haven't seen Denisha here or talk to talk to you really. Just a yeah. little bit in between prepping. So how, how have you been? What's up? <laughs> oh, it's been a whirlwind for the past two weeks, but things have been going good. Um, you know, I feel like I always just say, just work. <laughs> it's the same old thing. Work. <laughs> I really do. I need to have some fun. So, you know, for my Baltimore people, please get me out of the house. But that's pretty much it. Working and yeah. Have you done anything with like social justice activism or anything like that lately? Everything that I do now is like pretty much offline because of my group is in New York. So we do a lot of work that is based in New York. Um, and so this past um, past week, um, you know, we've been dealing with the differences with the cops in the subway. Um, today, there was a call because there was a teenager who actually went missing and was abducted off of the street, which is not really like the type of things that we normally do. But, you know, this is where like community comes together and there's like this rally and cry. Um, and she was abducted off the street in the Bronx today. And so, you know, the the folks were there on the ground just trying to make sure that the community felt support. Um, but yeah, I do all the things behind the scenes helping out with the verbiage and stuff like that but I haven't done anything in Baltimore and I'm, I need to find my fit in and find my home here too since I've been gone for so long from New York yeah yeah I'm sure it's hard when you've got such close connections up there and then moving you know yeah and that's my you know mm-hmm. and, the, and that's essentially my justice family so I've been with them for the past what five years or so so that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. My yeah. loyalties have been lying there. <laughs> and plus, I really do believe in the work that we're doing. Like, you know, we do a lot of work around criminal justice reform. And um, and so I, I hold that really heavy to my heart and just making sure to show up for for the community. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I text you a lot and you're, you're like, oh, I'm on a train to New York. So I have yeah. plenty of time to read. I was like, oh, cool. Uh-huh. I might be going back this weekend, too, so just to see everyone. Mm -hmm. Neat. So what about you? What have you been up to? Um, It's funny. Usually, I don't usually say work, but it has been work. Um, Mm -hmm. Finishing up the the semesters for teaching. 
And now it's like going to be a month off straight from everything, from life completely. So it's going to be great. It feels so weird. I don't know what to do with my time. It's, um, <laughs> I think I actually watched TV for the first time without having it on in the background while doing something else today for the first time. It was really weird. I almost felt like I wasn't being productive or being like constructive with my time. It was, I don't know. So there's that balance between finding, um, you know, time to, to relax. I don't know what that, that looks like. I wonder if a lot of people experience that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you will now in the next 30 days or so. Right. Right. That's nice. Yeah, for sure. Well, you have so, to let yeah. us know what you decide. <laughs> and I want to know what shows that you're watching too. <laughs> what? What? Hang on. What? I started watching the uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel on Amazon Prime. Okay. I heard a couple uh, people say things about that. And there's three seasons that are out right now. It's good. It's good. It's not bad. It's about a female comedian um, decades ago. I don't know what decade it's set in, what time period, but it's like, I would say like 40s, 50s, something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. So, um, but it was unheard of, you know, in that time. So if you're thinking about how culturally we've changed, it's really, that, that's how I sit there and I look at it. It's not, you can't just enjoy anything anymore. There's an analysis that comes along with it too. So, but it's good. It's nice. Yeah. yeah. Oh Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. So for our <laughs> listeners, tonight we will be talking to Evelyn Gould. Um, and Evelyn's going to walk us through living our values. And for those who don't know, but I'm sure plenty of you do know, Evelyn is a clinical behavior analyst and a research associate um, at the Child and Adolescent OCD Institute at McLean Hospital. And she is an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Um, so for you who are just tuning in, um, McLean Hospital is a residential and partial hospitalization program for children and adolescents struggling with treatment, refractory OCD and related disorders. Evelyn has so much experience working with families and children with autism and other learning and behavioral challenges across settings. And she is a clinical consultant for First Steps for Kids in Los Angeles and the New England Center for OCD and Anxiety in Boston. Evelyn also is engaged uh, and actively involved in research on parent and practitioner training, clinical assessment, and treatment design and behavioral interventions for parents and children. Um, So as you can tell, Evelyn has a large plethora of expertise. Um, (laughs) And that's not even all. Like I could keep going with the amount of things that Evelyn does. Um, And Evelyn, I'll let you add anything else that you feel is necessary to your bio, but um, yeah, I'll just tell you a little bit about how I um, met Evelyn. We met in Baltimore at a boot camp, and we've kind of been joined at the hip ever since. I've been lucky enough to be able to talk to her very often about, you know, what she's going to talk to us about tonight, which is living our values. And Evelyn has been, um, you know, a partner in trying to merge act the act um, processes together with thinking about how we view um, ourselves in terms of diversity, equity, and how we can um, utilize that to better um, ourselves and our field. And so that's really going to be, you know, what she joins us here with tonight. Um, Erin, how did you meet Evelyn? Same way. 
same way, <laughs> same, same way, same place. Uh, it's kind of cool. I've been waiting for this episode to happen, not because of the content, just to have all three of us together, because Evelyn was the one that introduced you and I mm-hmm. um, to each other because we both um, connected with her at the boot camp and then, um, and then have, uh, uh, you know, we both had the same interests. We both had a lot of the same challenges that arose and um, from that specific event. And so um, we've all been in contact and in a variety of different ways. And I, I think it was um, this past May at ABAI when then uh, it was the first time we all three, along with Kristen, did something together um, and did that. Um, I don't know, was this, is that called a symposium? symposium. Still like, okay, yep. thank you. I <laughs> still don't get those right. Um, so it was pretty cool to, to for that to come full circle. And now, um, you know, that idea that we had thrown out like a year ago about the podcast to come full, come full circle too. So it's pretty neat to see that there was an issue and now all these things have happened since then. And then you all presenting constantly together. It's so cool to see that you are joined at the hip. It's awesome. <laughs> it's been really fun. And, you know, Erin, I think that symposium was still, is still one of my favorites ever. Yeah. Why? I just remember feeling just so just couldn't stop grinning about it just the whole way through listening to you and Kristen and Denisha and then just just feeling so inspired and I think just because maybe it's because it was the beginning of a lot of journeys but I, I don't know it was just everything that I hoped it would be and I just felt so excited and energized and and just I don't know thrilled it just really thrilled me I just yeah so I still consider it one of my favorites <laughs> and I love that one of it's one of your favorites and there were like 10 people in the audience because we had the yeah. worst time slot yeah. <laughs> and like the yeah. most massive I'm like room. a 300 person stadium <laughs> and, then, and then like 20 people I think but it um yeah at like what 7 30 in the morning or something like that it was the worst slot but I, I, yeah i it's still like the one of my favorites ever maybe my favorite ever I thought it was just thrilling yeah yeah it was I wasn't even supposed to be up there I realized there's a lot of flexibility breaking all the rules yeah yeah but yeah I, I just remember some of the stuff that that uh Denisha said um mm-hmm that really I think spoke to a very large part of the audience in terms of like committed action and being mindful and present, um, you know, and just your thoughts. Um, and you said something about behavior. What was that quote again? Like, you know, we're talking about Skinner saying we need to save the world or something like that. And how, if, uh-huh. if we, we can't, how can we save the world? if We can't save our field. Mm-hmm. You know, what and was how that? Can we save? So yeah, it's a uh, Skinner said, you know, how can, why are we not saving the world? And I said, how can we uh, save the world if we can't even save our field? And how can we save our field if we can't even save ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's just, you know, talking about the personal responsibility that I feel is necessary in order for us to make those larger changes to our field. Um, there has to be some type of personal connection to the values that we've um, created as behavior analysts. So, and in order to do that, in order to save our field, <laughs> there has to be something inside that wants you to do that as well. So, yeah, definitely. That was, I really did enjoy that time. I remember just being extremely nervous. I've been nervous this entire journey. <laughs> I talk about it all the time, but um, that was like the first of many, obviously. But, um, you know, just going over 
those slides like <laughs> a thousand times um, and still getting up there and being so nervous that I had to read the entire thing. <laughs> but um, I'm glad that, you know, Evelyn, there's just something just very beautiful about people's spirits. And like Evelyn is just one of those people that you, I mean, I met her and she's just like, yeah, like, let's do this. And then, yeah, let's connect with more people that want to do this thing. Um, and, and I feel like folks that have that type of personality are just spirit and aura about them. Like, you know, we, we should not take those type of people for granted. Like, um, so Evelyn, I just, you know, I always tell you, but I just love you so much. And I'm glad that <laughs> <laughs> we've been able to do this work together. And even though it's been hard and, you know, you'll talk more about doing the hard stuff later, but, um, we still stay committed through the frustration and even the tears. So, yeah. Well, it's been a real privilege. And can I just say, I've been listening to your podcast and I was like listening to your podcast in my car and being like, oh, that would be the coolest to be on that podcast. Oh, <laughs> that's so cool. Not thinking at all that I would be on it. And then you're like, you want to come on the podcast? I'm like, oh my God, who me? <laughs> I feel so privileged to be invited to the space so thank you so much I really genuinely mean that it's like thrill it's so exciting um it means a lot to me so thank you thank Aww. you for being here yes it means a lot that it means a lot to you <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's I guess let's get into it um oh before we do that Evelyn did I miss anything do you want to tell our listeners anything else about you? I don't think so. I think I have my feet in a lot of camps, um, but primarily I think the information you shared paints a picture that I'm prim I'm a clinician, I'm very much in the trenches my whole career um, doing the work um, with clients. Um, I also do do some training and supervision and things like that. And of course, have my feet in the research academic world a little bit. Um, but my heart is in the clinical side of things. So I'm definitely very much an advocate for our field, even that side of the diversity, <laughs> diversifying um, within our field and um, respect and honor and seats at the table for clinical clinicians as well as academics. Um, I could get on a rant about all kinds of things related to that, but um, that wasn't what you asked me. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I don't think there's anything else I would add to that. I could uh, just talk and talk and talk. So I'm waffling now. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's get into it. I know that like Aaron said, we wanted to have you on the show for such a long time. So I feel like we have plenty of questions to ask you. Um, and I guess I'll start by talking a little bit about um, our, I guess, our code of ethics and what we know as behavior analysts in the field um, in terms of diversity. So right now, you know, if you are a behavior analyst, you adhere to ethical standards. And in our code of ethics, there is mention of diversity. Um, if you are a member of ABAI, there is a diversity statement. Um, Evelyn, can you talk to our listeners a little bit more about the standard that is in place for clinicians and just behavior analysts in general? And um, yeah, just, just tell us a little bit about what you think about the current standards we have. Um, I guess 
I'm sort of struggling with the fact that we do have mention of the need for behavior analytic practitioners to attend to contextual variables related to cultural diversity um, and to be concerned about that and to be sensitive to that. However, there's no actual requirement to demonstrate competency in those areas. So that's my concern. And the same with having at the ABA, ABAI did come out with a diversity policy last year. So we've only had one for a year, which I mean, come on, <laughs> it's 2019. But again, that's a statement. So that's a statement saying we, this is what we care about. We care about diversity. We care about um, cultural sensitivity, cultural competency at, at some level. But again, no directions in terms of what that, how that should look. How should we demonstrate competency or demonstrate that we're actually moving towards that value, um, actually behaving in ways that are in line with that value? It's not data. It's just an instruction or a statement saying, we should care about this, you should care about this. And um, I don't think that that's good enough for us as behavior analysts or, and you know, certainly as a behavior analyst, just saying you care about something doesn't mean anything. And really in terms of, are you actually doing the things, um, you know, we could all say, well, we know we shouldn't eat a ton of chocolate all the time, but then go and eat a bunch of chocolate. So really saying that, you know, you shouldn't do something to, or you should do something doesn't necessarily change behavior. Um, so I'm back to the BCBA or BACB, um, standards or ethical guidelines those are guidelines again they're saying like when you're with a family or delivering services you should be thinking about these things um, but there's no not that I'm aware of it's certainly not I don't think it's not in the visa in the verified course sequence or as a requirement to learn about these things um, it's certainly on the it's kind of put on the employers I think to kind of do some of that cultural competency training um, and employers are not required to do that and when you ask I know Denisha we when we've been doing trainings we kind of ask people in the room like who feels like they've had they need more training who's had training who and, and most of the people in the room who put their hands up saying they've had training in cultural competency or diversity issues are not from didn't come didn't do ABA masters they basically came from social work um, or psychology where there is a requirement um, to have some cultural competency or some understanding of diversity and equity issues so that's kind of a long-winded answer but that's my answer it's like yes we have these little statements but statements are not enough and actually the last training we did Denisha I don't even remember this but most of people in the room didn't even know that statement was in there um, and I'd say about 80 percent if not more of the people in the room didn't know that there was anything in the code about cultural differences or um, diversity issues and then most of the people also did not know that ABAI had a diversity policy right it, it, so. it's in the ethics code no and this one actually i was so shocked like even when I can tell you my reaction because i wasn't expecting it honestly mm -hmm. and it's not you know and i made it clear that it's not like a judgmental shock it's just like no, i did not yeah. realize that you know that that would be people's response i actually like had a follow-up question yeah. like yeah. um but we kind of just stopped there for a moment and just like considered what that is like then like if we don't even know that the statement is there mm-hmm 
then how is this actually going to show up in our work? It's probably not going to really show up in our work, mm-hmm. right? If we don't even know that we're bound by that, we don't, and we don't think that we have to be bound by it, I guess. Um, so I was just really, I was really shocked um, to kind of hear that feedback, but to go, you know, more to or to piggyback off what you were saying, Evelyn, it's like we have these standards that are there, but then we set it and we just kind of walked away from it. We're like patting ourselves on the back. Good job. We did it. We care about this stuff. We have said, we have declared that we care about diversity. Um, And if you look um, close to the statement, it's actually just an anti-discrimination statement. mm -hmm. It's not even really like jam-pack of anything. It's just like, you must not discriminate. Mm -hmm. But what if I don't know that I'm discriminating, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm just going to automatically say I'm a good person. I don't discriminate against anyone. Mm-hmm. So right. one thing I've noticed in talking with people is that people think that like anti-discrimination or not, so not discriminating some, some, against someone is also the same as equity or equality mm-hmm. or, and, and often people don't even know what the term equity means. Can you all, can you all talk about that just a little bit? Like what the difference between not discriminating, but that, or, but then equity would be. So we talked a little bit about that in our last training, essentially, because that is something like just because we are free of this like overt thing, right? Like I'm overtly saying that I don't accept this type of person here. That doesn't mean that you are actually moving towards equity or, um, you know, being exhibiting equitable behaviors. Essentially, what I view equity as is like there is equal access to like the resources, being able to also um, recognize or accept different, you know, types of folks, different viewpoints, different uh, language, um, different types of speaking or whatever, like an actual acceptance of of those types of things and not, and to me, what equity looks like is, um, you know, those different types of people aren't told to come to like the majority standard, right? That's a full, like you can be kind of whoever you are um, at any point in time. And I think that's a very like, lacks way of just like kind of describing it but that's what that looks like to me like everyone you have equal access to the things that are put in front of you if there are any like things that are preventing you from receiving access then you know adequate measures are attempted in order to make sure that you do there is some um there is a way to make you equal um enough to gain access to those things so i think um yeah, so I think it looks like that. The equal access, finding ways to make sure that people actually can um, have that access and then also accepting the people that are coming to the table, regardless of what they look like, speak like, um, identify as, things like that. So. I think I think there's something important in there, Denisha, about with equity, it's acknowledging that people are different, actually, and different people are going to need different things. Yes. So I think that's really, really important, like equal access okay, is fine, but different people are going to need different things in order to access those things. Mm -hmm. So it's acknowledging, it's not just, it's like that, that um, cartoon that you had put in our slides with the the equal opportunity employer one, where the shape cut in the door doesn't let anyone out, anyone but one kind of person through the door. So saying we're going to provide equal access and not discriminate against people does not necessarily mean everyone can access that stuff, because not everybody is the same. And not everyone is coming from the same playing field or level. 
right? So everybody, you need to be able to see and acknowledge and notice differences and be sensitive to differences in order to understand exactly what each type, each person needs in order to have access to that uh, resource or whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah, that would be the difference for me. It's like saying, <laughs> saying I'm not going to discriminate and also, not only am I not going to discriminate, but I'm going to notice and acknowledge differences in order to help everybody get a get an equal footing. Um, yeah. Can you give Can you give need. a specific example as to what that would look like? Like, pick something. I mean, thinking about clients. I mean, clients right there. Like, different clients have different resources and different um, needs, um, and are going to have to jump through different kinds of hoops to get services, depending on um, their socioeconomic status they're in funding source um can you know do they have insurance do they have medicaid like what's going on there um are they getting you know a california uh, regional center or whatever they don't pay anymore but before that would have been consideration so where do they live do they have transport um you know what's their ability to get their kids to the center so just thinking about clients as an example i think like students as well like how do you help students from different backgrounds with different um of all kinds of different cultural differences or whatever access at higher education um or access a curriculum or you know we we've been talking a lot about practitioners and accessibility my partner works in accessibility um software design and is constantly every time i bring them with me to some kind of event they're constantly pointing out to me how inaccessible the event is for anybody other than fully able-bodied uh, people who also can afford to be there. So I would say that, like thinking about different needs of people, because everyone has to get their CEs and everyone's supposed to go to these things like conferences, but how do we help everybody get there? Well, it's interesting you said that, like I think about every time everybody starts registering for ABAI and unless you're a student, people are like, I can't afford well, to go every year. There's no way, so I, I just can't mm -hmm. make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, and that too, there was one specific thing. It was a conference. It was a meme or something I read, but it said the next time you're a presenter and you say, no, I don't need a microphone. Think about the one person that might be hearing impaired enough to where they would need that microphone. Like you, just because you don't, aren't comfortable using that doesn't mean you shouldn't use it because somebody else might have trouble hearing you. Yeah. Um, and they don't want to be the one person to stand up and say, no, actually, I, I can't hear you. You know, right. when everybody else as a group says, yeah, we can hear. Um, but it's not enough to say my my uh, presentation is open to everybody. I'm not discriminating. Right. Yep. Right. Exactly. So that's the difference there. It's like okay. you can say, like, I'm being fair. Everyone has this. I think about, like, you know, the educational system, for example, um, everyone has access to public schooling right and so that means everyone has access to education and so we start to get into like the meritocracy type of conversations where it's like you can do this and you know lift yourself up by your bootstraps and everyone can be a doctor one day because it's available to everyone but it's like well actually we're going to siphon off the resources and send them to this other school you're going to have to share textbooks then we're going to make your parents who are already being pay underpaid pay for your textbooks if you really want them and so it's just one thing to be like everyone's fair everyone has access to this thing or this conference or this talk that i'm doing but there are people that are you know in the background or in the forefront and you're just you know ignoring them intentionally and they're saying hey we need this and you're just like 
everyone will be fine. You know, we, mm-hmm. we have this thing for, for you also deal with it because this is what fairness looks like. Um, we're not making any concessions because this person over here is doing just fine. Um, and we can't set our standard on what the majority folks are needing because majority, whatever that might be, they're, they're not speaking to the, you really should be speaking to the most uh, impacted or vulnerable people in, in any of the rooms, because if you don't, you're missing individuals. Like, um, it's okay. Like if you are, you know, even when you brought up, um, able-bodied folks and we're constantly making, making sure that we set our rules for conferences around like, okay, so our able-bodied folks need to be able to get from this side of the hotel to that side. And we're going to test it out. The average able-bodied person can get there in five minutes. So we're just going to give our able-bodied folks two more minutes just to make sure that's okay. Who are you leaving out? That should not be how you're setting your standards. You should be setting your standard for the person that's going to need time to get across that room. Um, And then using that um, as your as your level. Right. And that's how I think that you make sure that you're bringing that. I feel like that's what equity looks like. Um, if we're not, if we're not bringing in the voices of the most impacted, um, then we're going to continue to be having these conversations of like, but everything was fair. You know, we just offered it. Um, we said, come to our conference and price the same for everyone. And most of these people can afford to go to your conference that costs you $900 a pop. And then go to this other conference that costs you $600 and then turn around and go to this other conference that costs $300 or whatever. And then we look at each other and say, well, that's, you know, if you want to be a good BCBA, then you have to go to these conferences. That's the only way you're going to be smart if, you know, and, but who, who, who's not able to get there? I think that's my rant for the night. (laughs) I'm going to stop there. Well, Denisha, you're making me think, though, how unbehavior analytic that is, right? Because that would be like me going, good job, me. I put this uh, object labels program in a kid's binder, but I'm never going to look at the data to see what Mm. the kid's learning. And I just don't care because it's in there. So good job, me. Um, You know, I've seen that pan out where I've seen organizations be like, we are an equal opportunity employer. We, We don't, you know, we value diversity. And yet when you look at the makeup of their organization, which is the data, it's right glaringly right there tell, with the, telling you how you're doing, like how your policies are working. It's very obviously telling the world is telling the organization, well, that's great, but it's not working. But they are absolutely non-willing to look at that data. They're like, nope, we are fair. We, we, are, we do not have a problem with promoting only um, white employees. That's just not a thing. And you're like, but look at your organizational structure. Look at the data. Look at who you're hiring. Look at who's getting promoted. There's a problem there, um, right? That's not, we're not even looking at the data and doing the analysis. So it's kind of, I mean, we just wouldn't do that, I hope, <laughs> anywhere else. And the other thing is, Denisha, we talked about, like, it's really weird that behavior analysts are okay about saying, I feel good about this, so we're done. Whenever mm-hmm. they give psychologists so much flack for doing that all the time in their research, right? Just this person says this worked and they feel good about it. They think the treatment was helpful, so good job us. Right. But we wouldn't accept that as behavior analysts. We would right. be like, but we want to know, did their behavior actually change? Right. Is their life different? Are they actually living their life differently? Or are they just saying they feel better? Like we wouldn't be okay with that. So I don't know why we're okay with it in this realm of diversity. 
be like, I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like I'm, I put these policies in place. I said, I care about this. Good job, me. I feel good about it. Job done. Done. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so Evelyn, you do a lot of work uh, around acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. Um, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about, to like, I guess, just kind of let, tell them what ACT is. Aaron and I have talked about ACT on the show before. Um, but if you could just give like a little background into what it is and then talk a little bit about how we can use ACT and apply it to, um, issues of diversity and equity and justice. Yeah, no pressure. I will try. <laughs> um, I'm like, wow, that's a lot to try and sum up, but I would, I describe ACT um, simply as a behavioral analytic approach to dealing with difficult thoughts and feelings or private versus private events. Um, it's really about teaching you strategies um, that enable you to continue living your life towards your values or doing being able to do hard stuff even in the face of adversity, essentially. It's like helping you contact longer later reinforcers essentially that motivate you to keep going in the face of adversity right to tolerate or to be able to expose be willing to expose yourself to short-term aversive consequences or short-term reverses aversive thoughts aversive feelings whatever um be willing to expose yourself to those things um and move forward towards something that's bigger than that that's more meaningful to you to live the Mm -hmm. life that you want um, I guess that's, is that good enough? <laughs> I don't know. Um, feeling the fear and doing it anyway is another way of talking about ACT, I think. Um, but it really, that's what it is for me. For me, with the kids that I work with, um, we talk about it as making your life bigger, like being able to make your life so big that they're really, sh- I was going to swear there, <laughs> they're, they're really crappy stuff doesn't matter, you know, that it doesn't, that it's you know, creating a big, another way they've described it is creating a big space around, um, a big, big space around the, the pain so that it doesn't matter anymore. Um, and teaching new skills, like teaching new discrimination skills would be part of that. So learning how to discriminate when you're under, prim- your behavior is primarily under verbal control versus direct contingencies. So that's the mindfulness piece. So noticing um, am I in my head or am I in the world? And am I, what is, what is get, um, driving my behavior right now? Am I, am I under more under aversive control and avoiding and trying to feel better? Or am I moving towards things that care about me, even though this is really hard? So am I willing to, and then thinking about willingness, like, am I willing to have this crappy stuff if it means that I'm moving towards things that matter to me? Um, what even matters to me is part of it too. Like, who do I want to be? Like, what kind of a person do I want to be in the world? What kind of, um, what way do I want to live my life? What, what would I want people to say about me at the end of my life as, in terms of the person that I am? Um, like ways, and by that I'm talking about ways of behaving, obviously. Like, uh, what are the behaviors that I want to engage in? Um, what am I all about? So all of those things or act for me, but I think ultimately it's about courage to me. Act is just, is about finding courage um, within adversity or within struggle and 
self-compassion as well is very much part of the act model so being able to be kind to yourself when things are hard or you make mistakes um, approaching all things that are hard in a more productive adaptive way than just avoiding um, or doing things that are ultimately harmful to you in the long run that was a I lot. Love how, <laughs> I love how behavior analytic you just made that though, because I think oh, that's yeah. some people get really turned off by ACT and and uh, especially some behavior analysts and and the way that especially where you say what your behavior is under the control of is it under the control of um, verbal behavior, verbal private events, or is it under the control of direct contingencies? Like that really mm -hmm. spoke to me. Um, because it is, and it's hard. And, and if you don't have, whether you call it mindfulness, whether you call it present moment awareness, mm -hmm. what a self-awareness, whatever it is, it's, it's being able to acknowledge and be aware of your own behavior and observe your own behavior in the same way that you mm -hmm. would do that to a client or, or you know, um, in, in a mm -hmm. clinical setting or something like that. And, mm -hmm. um, we don't do that mm -hmm. enough if at mm -hmm. all, sometimes, you know, yeah, there's a few things that I'm thinking there, Aaron, that are super important about what you just said. And one is you have to be, you can, the point of change is only in this moment, right? You can't change behavior in the future. You can't change behavior in the past. There is no future and past. There's only like right now. So when you're under verbal control, a lot of the time we're thinking about the future, we're thinking about the past, right? We're worrying about the future and ruminating on the past. And we cannot, that is not a space where vari variation or flexibility or a, a change of behavior change can happen, right? It just can't, it, ha it can only happen in this moment. That's the only point of change that we have. Same with like a kid that you're working with, right? You, the only point of change you have is right now when you're working with the kid. You can't change the kid's behavior like tomorrow, you're not in the future and you can't change what happened yesterday. You're not in the past. You can only work with what's in front of you. Um, you can make plans all you want, but really like what we're doing in the trenches is with those kids in the moment, right? It, you know, even the, even the behavior plan, you make that in advance, but ultimately it's what the RBT does with that plan and they're working with the kid, right? In the moment as to whether it's gonna be successful or not and you're gonna see behavior change. So that's kind of what I see ACT is ACT is about the, the getting you in the moment, in the present, and that's where you have your point to change. That's where the opportunity is to contact reinforcements. That's where the opportunity is to do something adaptive. Um, so that's part of what I was thinking about. And then I was thinking about verbal control and all the problems with inflexibility that come with language um, or verbal rules and things like that. And so, um, the direct contingencies is where you need to be um, or usually a lot more there's a lot more opportunities for variability to happen um, it, within the direct environment than when you're stuck following rigid rules or stuck in your head or stuck in your head as we call it with the kids or in your advisor zone your advisor space yeah those rigid rules um i one that really i figured out um that i was fused with for the longest time was this idea that uh, for, like a source of employment had to be this nine to five, 40 hour week job kind of thing. And, and it had to be full time with benefits. And it was like, I was raised to think that, and I never functioned well in that space ever to the point where I thought something was wrong with me. Um, and now I have like this work schedule where I'm, it's very flexible. There's only certain rigid time frames that, that I can align that with. And like, uh, I wake up, four in the morning sometimes and work for six hours straight. And I don't work the rest of the day until I teach from like eight to 10 at night. Um, but that 
that is workable for me. But when I'm fused to that, that rule that mm -hmm. my job has to be this, it doesn't like, it doesn't work well. And that's that verbal control of my, of that, mm -hmm. of my behavior. And mm -hmm. it's not workable mm -hmm. and it has all these issues. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, realizing, and it's still hard. I still catch myself sometimes it's like five o'clock, I should not be working anymore. And it's like, wait, I didn't work <laughs> for like the past six hours. I can do yeah. this now, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, again, not a, you know, a big example, but something mm -hmm. that maybe some people can relate to. Well, we, we could talk, we could relate this very much into something Denise and I talked about in our mm -hmm. trainings quite a bit. And that is where we get tripped up mm -hmm. in terms of verbal rules or self rules or self stories. We talk about that in our training in term with respect to diversity and, and equity issues. So a lot of us have rules about ourselves in terms of like, I want, I'm a good person. I'm an ally, therefore I can't be racist, right? So you put it in a frame with like, a good person is not racist. Mm -hmm. I'm a good person, therefore I cannot be racist. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is what happens then when somebody gives you feedback and says to you that you've done something that's offensive or racist in some way, you're going to cling to that rule. Most likely you're not going to respond well. You're going to get defensive. You're going to do what you can um, because there's no flexibility there. It's like a good person is not racist. I'm a good person. You're telling me I'm racist. I, I, that is not okay. That's not, that can't be true. Um, or you're going to argue with that. It's going to be, it's very, it's a, it's problematic. Um, Whereas if you have a more flexible rule of like, I'm a good person and an ally, and sometimes I may do things that are racist, um, that is possible. I'm also privileged and therefore I can't know all the ways that I'm probably hurting other people at times or contributing to um, or being complicit to the systemic oppressions and things like that. Like when you have those more and flexible rules, when somebody then gives me feedback, if I have a more flexible rule, I'm going to be much more open and able to incorporate that, right? I'm not going to be, I'm likely to be less offensive and more able to kind of hear it, I think. Yeah. Can I um, say something about that too? Yeah. So I think part, you know, part of that is what we know as like, are what we were taught about, like who racist are mm -hmm. or like who mm -hmm. are sexist or who are mm -hmm. these people? Like we're taught this in a sense of like, these were the people that were doing these overt horrible things that. to individuals yeah. and I'm going to use like racism as the thing mm -hmm. right so we learned about the racist as being skinheads KKK they're you know they're people burning crosses in mm -hmm. people's yards mm -hmm. um, or hanging people up from trees or dragging people and that's a very dark you know way but that's the truth you know so a lot of times we try not to talk about the past because it it's um, hurtful but that's how we looked at it as these were the races, they were the KKKs. But one thing we failed to remember is that every point of history, there was always people that was standing around those trees watching. Mm -hmm. They weren't the people that were actually stringing others up. And so I see that as the, that's the complicity there. Right. And so you might not have people being um, hanged in like actually being hanged in front of you, but, but, our behaviors are actually imitating those that were standing around the tree watching and saying nothing and doing nothing and essentially reinforcing those few who engaged in that behavior. And um, 
But because we don't know racism to look like that, because we don't consider the people that are sitting around being complicit, then I therefore am not that person. Mm -hmm. Um, I therefore am not this sexist Mm -hmm. because I'm not the person that's engaging in domestic violence or um, doing these things against women or whatever. Um, But there's going to always be people that are just sitting there and that are um, engaging in some of those behaviors that are a little bit less um, physically, um, you know, aversive or whatever. And so I, I think we have to consider that part too, that our complicity also um, speaks to some of these systems that are in place right now. Um, And then just, you know, what you were talking about, Evelyn, about being able to be flexible in that, that you are going to get feedback. And sometimes you are going to be doing this, the behaviors that other people are calling this thing. Like as a heterosexual person, there are going to be times where I might say, do, think, feel something that is, you know, the person that's probably going to be likely or similar to someone who's all that's fully against it. And so being flexible enough to know that I'm not going to be perfect in this journey, that there are going to be some overlaps or some similarities and not allowing ourselves to shut down over language. Like I know um, in our field, um, I, I remember uh, one of my first jobs using the term maladaptive behaviors and that's a terminology, right? And thinking about like how that functions for a parent that you're saying, oh, your child engages in maladaptive behavior. And they're like, wait, what? What are you calling my child? And and there's a shutdown. And so it's like telling a person that what you just did was racist. And they're like, uh, what? I'm going to yeah. shut this down. But what the parent is communicating to you is that, that didn't, something that you said or something that you did didn't sit right with me. And so we need to be able to kind of look at our own um, behaviors and just know that some of the things that we say don't function the same for other people. But when other people do use certain time terminology towards us, um, then there is something that they're also communicating to us. And I think that racism, sexism, whatever the ism is, that's just very common knowledge or common terminology that we have. And we use it um, to say, hey, essentially what you did was not right. Um, And so shutting down at the instance of just hearing it um, probably is not going to move you towards whatever you say that you care about. If a person came to you and said, you know, um, you enacted a microaggression against me and that felt, you know, a certain way to me. And you're just like, nope, nope, that's not true because I look at everyone the same. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't see you for your social identities or whatever, then you're probably dismissing them and you're definitely not going to do better. You're not going to be able to further relationship, further the relationship that you have with them, but then you're also not going to be able to move closer to what you have also stated that you said you care about. Um, and so that's my second rant. So Denisha, <laughs> Denisha, this reminds me what you're talking about here is brings me back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, which was that um, refusal to actually pay attention to the data, right? I am saying this, this is my rule. I am not insensitive to what the world is telling me about that rule. So mm-hmm. if I have, that's the problem with verbal control. It can make you really inflexible and totally like that. We talk about the kids. It makes you totally not pay attention to the feedback the world is giving you about the way you're living your life and who you're being and what your behavior is saying. So if you're rigidly clinging to the fact that we are an equal opportunity employer or you're clinging to the rule of I am not racist, I don't want to be even the rule like I don't want to be a racist. 
right? That's not, that's wrong. That's not okay. So I am the good person. I don't want to be that. Um, you're going to become really insensitive to feedback from the world about anything that's again, that's going against that, right? So the same as the organization that is like angry when I'm trying to point out, okay, you ha- I hear you, you have this policy, you say this, this is your value, and here is the data. And then they get mad about it and say, that's absolutely not true. So it's, I don't know, that's where my mind went. It came back to that inflexibility. And the beauty of ACT is ACT, the whole point of ACT is to try and again, loosen that verbal control and help you be more sensitive to feedback from the world, to get in that discovery space, as we call it with the kids, to be able to actually track, right? So instead of clinging to rules for rules sake, you actually start tracking whether the rules are helpful to you, when they're helpful to you, whether they're actually accurate, whether your behavior is actually in line and the outcomes that you're experiencing are actually in line with the rule. And then you get to be flexible and decide, okay, this rule is actually not that helpful to me. Or maybe I can add to the rule. Maybe I can add stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm willing to get and be willing to get in that uncomfortable space because learning is hard. <laughs> learning is really hard. Realizing that some of the things you thought about yourself might not be completely accurate um, or that there's more to it is hard. Having courage to also, you know, Deisha, we talked about belonging and human beings want to belong. They're social animals. It's really hard to speak up and challenge systems and, you know, be risk, risk being rejected from your group, um, potentially. Human, I mean, we understand that as human beings, like that, you know, a lone person is a dead person whenever you're in a caveman days in the, out there. So it's, it can be really difficult for people to, yeah, step outside that zone of complicity. And it's hard for people to give up stuff, right? Privilege is, you know, we use the word privilege to describe privilege because it's privilege. Uh-huh. It gives you stuff that you don't have to work for. And in order for us to be equitable or for other people to have seats at the table, some people have to give up their seats. Like that's the reality there, you know, to lift other people up you have to be willing to make space for them and that means being willing to give up some privileges and that's really hard for everybody it's hard Um, and it doesn't get easier Denisha we were talking as well about how I feel like the more you do this work and the more you use act and you start opening your eyes to the world it actually becomes even harder (laughs) Um, it doesn't get any easier like doing hard stuff doesn't get any easier Um, I find it, I'm very grateful and very grateful for ACT and it does, and it's challenging, like um, noticing, you know, it's like the more you notice things, the more you start noticing the problems, (laughs) I guess. So I think it was two, two classes ago, I was writing a paper about um, privilege and oppression and, and it was supposed to be the solution focused paper as to how to, to culturally change and shift some of these things. And I, I just kind of kept like running up against the dead end because the issue that I continued to come in, up with was um, what you just said was if I have access to all these reinforcers and control of all these reinforcers, and if I know reinforcement increases the likelihood of future behavior, why would I choose to stop that? You know? And so it, kept coming back to values, but it also kept coming back to 
uh, this question of, do you need some sort of, so for me, it's like personal connection. It's, it's caring about people. It's, um, it's seeing the product of harm or, or good, you know, and, and, and does that have to happen in order, uh, in order for you to, in, to relinquish control of some of those reinforcers. And, um, I've come into contact a lot with, with people where it doesn't matter. It doesn't change. Um, and I haven't quite figured that out yet. Uh, like my own family, you know, things like it, it doesn't matter. Um, and I don't know if it's like these rigid rules of this is how humans are supposed to be. And there's no flexibility with that whatsoever. Um, but I've also experienced the, the exact opposite of that. But I mean, what, what's your all's take on that? Like just where does personal connection kind of lie in all of this? I guess Aaron, Aaron, I'm ask, I want some clarification. Are you talking about sure. connecting with others in service of getting others to change or getting them to be more sensitive about these issues or um, what do you, what as the con, what do you? So saying that if, I'm trying to think of maybe a scenario. Um, like if I'm thinking of, I don't know, Denise, do you have a scenario? I'm trying to, it's, see, it's late. This is one of those things. I know. I, I totally agree. <laughs> um, let me, oh. I'm going to, I guess. Are you talking about community? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to paraphrase and see if I could, because I feel like I, I followed, but I don't know. Yeah. So um, essentially what I felt like I was hearing is, um, does an individual already have to have some type of um, connection to caring for others in order to, I guess, want to um, do kind of the work that's related to equity and justice. Do they need to contact those contingencies almost directly by somebody like in their family or a personal friend or something like that? Does there have to be someone who's directly affected by these issues? Do they need to directly observe and contact that in some way and also care like some kind of altruism or something. Um, I don't think so because I think that you can, I mean, there's always going to be the small minority of people I think you can't reach, but I think that you can connect with a human being. It's like, I do this every day with parents that I work with, right? When I'm trying to figure out, how can I get this parent to do this really hard thing and take on board this recommendation that I'm making that they, and, and how do I deliver this, tell them this stuff that they don't want to hear, right? How do I get them to be open to that? Um, and for me, the act piece is very helpful there because I have learned to, it's like really listening and really trying to figure out what does this person really care about? What matters to them? And underneath, I don't really believe that people generally have um, antisocial values um, or destructive values. I, don't, I think you just have to keep digging because underneath there is something about, usually about belonging, um, connecting, being good enough, things like important things about being a human. And the way in is to find that and relate that it's a relating process and then frame being using language as a behavior analyst using language really functionally like what are the words that are most meaningful to this person 
that I can say that can bring what's important to them into the room, into this conversation? And how do I get this to function in the way that I want it to? Not how I think it should function or what words I like or what words I want to say, um, because that's about me. That's not about the other person and what I need them to do. Um, so it's a process of, that's the process for me. Sometimes you're not the person. Um, Right. Especially if it's like there's a personal relationship there. Maybe you're not the person. I don't know. Sometimes I can't move everybody, but I do. I think ACT helps me also to not to be able to step back from my own crap. So, you know, if I'm in a situation with somebody um, like a parent who's, you know, difficult or something and I'm trying to get them to hear what I need them to hear. I have to be able to notice all my own stuff showing up because that person's going to be aversive to me, right? They're an aversive stimulus. I'm going to have a bunch of responses to that physiologically and, you know, private events about how I don't want to have this conversation. This person's really difficult. I totally disagree. I don't, we're not on the same page. I don't, maybe I don't agree with their value, you know, what their, their political views or whatever it is. I have to be able to um, notice that and notice that I'm, notice if I want to respond to that and step back from it so I can think about okay I feel this way I'm having all these thoughts but what is it I need to actually do right now that is moving me in a direction that is useful not what I want to do or what I feel like I want to do but like what is what is the thing that I need to say here um and I'm not saying it's easy like especially and, and you learn, right? So that's the tracking part too. Like sometimes I don't get it right. And sometimes you can't bring everyone with you. Um, but again, just because somebody doesn't necessarily, Adisha and I talked, Denisha and I talked about this too, just because your audience or the person you're talking to doesn't respond in a wonderful way in that moment, the, you know, the la la dreamland way of responding to you like i totally get it i have changed i, I hear you i'm going to go out and do this stuff does not mean that you're not having an impact it does not mean that your words or behavior are not functioning in a way that matters you don't know you have to keep observing um does that make sense like you just you know we, we do this work with kids sometimes we they have all kinds of responses to the things that we do you know they might have a meltdown whenever we do something and that and we understand that that's okay that's part of the process so i'm just saying that just because somebody doesn't necessarily have like a hug come and hug you or whatever because you're telling them this feedback is not necessarily mean that what you're doing is not working or isn't worth yeah. something or isn't um an action for you that's in the right direction. We talked about it, um, you know, in terms of like those little nuggets, like anytime that you have a conversation with someone, it you might, like Evelyn said, you might not have the full aha moment, like I've been wrong, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that little nugget is like, mm -hmm. it's, it's there, like mm -hmm. that's gonna be there um, and they're gonna take that with them now that you've put that into mm -hmm. their, um, their um mind 
But I kind of look at it like, you know, if we're teaching someone a new skill, for example, and let's say you're just doing the standard DTT, like they didn't have anything. And what we're trying to do is prompt these responses to get them to independence. Over time, they're going to get to that independent response. It's not, it might not be that first time that you introduce it though. And depending on the learner, it might take more trials. It might take more sessions, more months to try to get this one particular skill. And, um, um, that's kind of how I see it. Like I grew up with, uh, I have a military background, like both of my parents are in the military. And so the military is, is its own culture. And if you know about the military, it's very conservative. And so my family, I grew up with some of those same conservative values. And I remember being a teenager, like something doesn't seem right. And so I was that teenager that, you know, have been dropping the small things in the bucket um, over time. And it's just been really crazy just over the years to see the changes in my parents. Um, and that didn't happen overnight. It took years and years and we still don't agree about everything, but that drop in the bucket keeps happening. And I'm just going to keep putting those little nuggets in there. And I, and I, you know, I take that um, type of approach with people, obviously, that I really care about. I think um, I've talked about it on the show before. For me, having those conversations with folks that I don't have a personal connection to, uh, it, that's harder. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to shut down. I'm probably going to drop one little nugget and leave or decide that I'm not dropping anything and leave that to other people. Mm -hmm. um, but regardless, um, I guess for the listeners, I would just say someone else. <laughs> some, some of the work that I'm doing right now in training of teachers, I work with a friend of mine who is definitely an ally in this movement for social justice and equity, a, a white woman Jennifer Borelli, and we're training teachers on dismantling barriers with particular focus on racism in education. And one of the things that we do in our training is we dissect critical race theory. And we, we share with teachers the matrix of oppression and how there is that intersectionality of injustice. And if you can't, I agree with you, Denisha, I'm right with you, if you cannot understand that unfortunately the foundations of our country was built on this social construct of race and power lawmaking how that affected so much from the beginning of our country then you cannot i don't think that you can adequately say that you are uh fighting for justice in in other arenas you have to take that into account so um, I think for allies, they have to be very careful when they are speaking, whether it be paid or unpaid. I do a lot of volunteer work with a local organization, a very progressive organization um, here in Florida. But a lot of the people who were speaking and who were the voices of the movement were not amplifying the voices that needed to be amplified. So then what are you really doing? you're really just putting yourself on front street. So how is, how is that gonna bring in people who don't feel like they have a voice? How is that gonna empower them? It's not going to. So the allies in the, the behavior analysis field, people who want to really make a change, change, start with the research that you're doing. If you have the platform and the power for your voice to be heard, do some research on racial inequity within the field or in racial inequity in the provision of services. Um, that, that's, that's so key. 
And does anyone else want to add to that before we kind of move on? I want to allow you to put out anything that you feel might be a solution or it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a system-wide solution, right? I talk a lot about individual uh, behaviors. And so if you have anything, whether it be as, you know, as an individual practitioner, I think you could read this piece of literature, whatever it is. So I want to open up the floor just in case anyone else has anything pressing they want to present. Well, I mean, there is, to me, there's one more thing that I think the field of behavior analysis can specifically do. Um, as a certified individual within within our organization, we understand that we have to do CEUs. That it's a requirement that must be done. Um, I know I am probably not the only one, but I never received any culturally competent training during my entire undergraduate as well as even my doctoral program. Um, so I think that it would be good, especially now that the field is kind of moving towards this more culturally competent, multicultural approach to have a requirement of a culturally competent or some kind of cultural cultural CEUs. Um, but also I think that even for like conference participants, just if you see a workshop that is about cultural competency or something of that nature, simply go and attend because it might make you uncomfortable in the moment, but sometimes most change, it starts with people being uncomfortable. That's good, Sean. I'm off and, my soapbox. And, Sorry. Uh, I, I know. Um, We're we just talk, talking too much, Sean. Um, <laughs> I think also we have to be aware that cultural competence infers that there's an end. Like, oh, yeah, I know all these terms. I know all these strategies. I know all these best practices. And cultural competence is not the end. It's just the beginning. Absolutely. We need to be moving people, always striving to move people towards cultural humility. And when you are, you are a culturally humble person, when you're operating from a space of, I want to be a person that practices cultural humility, you understand that the work is ongoing. We all have our biases. We all have our places where we need to learn more. So moving towards cultural humility is where we should be. That's going to be in all the fields, medicine, and our field, it loves so much ABA. Jada, I felt like you were about to say something, so I want to give you the floor. Yes, I was. So I was actually going to chime in after um, Sean's response, but I thought that that was a very good point that he made about, you know, making that a requirement for everyone to have to do is to receive some sort of cultural competence training. Um, so I was even thinking, what if the board, the same way we have to get ethics CEUs and supervision CEUs, what if we made it mandatory so that everyone would have to get at least five units of cultural competence CEUs, whether that be, um, I don't know, you interacting with in your work, a culture that's different than your own, or you attending something that has to do with um, a training in cultures that are different than your own. I think that that would be much needed and actually very important. Or if we could even add that to our coursework, there's no reason why we shouldn't have cultural competence in our coursework. Before I started um, my, my ABA program um, in grad school, I actually went through a year of counseling 
um, in, in um, graduate school. And I didn't like the field so much, but I was very grateful that I was able to take the course in cultural competence. They require that in counseling. And to go from that to ABA and to see that that's not offered, you would think that it is because they're very different practices, but you're still working with people. You're still working with diverse audiences. So why not have that cultural competence as a standard? Absolutely. I love that idea. And for the coursework, because we, you know, we've talked about that before too, but the, the CEU, because it doesn't just start before your certification. It's something like Robin, you were saying, like competency kind of um, alludes to this finality of learning skill sets that are, you know, finite or something like that. But the cultural curiosity and cultural humility is like this ongoing learning process where you are taking a backseat to somebody and learning from them. And um, Jada, I love that. I think that if there, if there could be anything that could ben, like benefit people right now. And two, it, you know, thinking about if diversity really is quote unquote diversity or cultural <coughs> competency is a, is a value of um, behavior analysis. What better way to put, you know, words into action. You know, I think that that's, um, I think that's awesome. Awesome. All right. So um, I, I'm interested to know, um, your all's experience with culture, um, cultural humility, awareness, um, et cetera, with your clients, your research participants, how did you start to learn the concept and um, start to exhibit not expertise in that area, but just we, we keep using the word competency and we know the differences now, but how did you start to exhibit those culturally humble or aware behaviors towards your clients or your researcher participants? Where did you learn it? And why did you even feel the need to incorporate that in your work from the, from the beginning? Well, we, I don't know. Oh, you want to go, go ahead, Mika. I think, you know, my first five years in the field, um, it wasn't a variable at all. Um, and so I want to say it was when I moved to California and then on to Texas, where I was more aware of the microaggressions that I was experiencing, um, that I then began to look at it from more of a social validity perspective, right? So anytime I served staff or families of diverse backgrounds, um, that was at the forefront. So what is valuable in your home? What is valuable in your culture? Um, what do you think about this intervention? Um, so I think as a field, that's kind of where it starts is from that social validity standpoint, right? Like a lot of our research looks at the social validity of, a, of an intervention after the fact, but I think we need to do better at hearing voices, um, at the outset of an intervention, of assessment, of intake, things like that. That was actually going to be very similar to my answer. Um, I completely agree with what you just said, Mika. When I was in high school, actually, I went to a high school that was predominantly white. So I kind of grew up kind of already dealing with the same things that I'm dealing with in the field. I dealt with the microaggressions. I dealt with, you know, feeling different or feeling inferior in the beginning and then learning how to use my voice in the end. 
Um, and how I did that was I just kind of talked to people. You know, I got to know them. I asked them questions about themselves. I got to know people on a personal level while also allowing people to get to know me on a personal level. And overall, I feel like that really does help um, everyone feel a little bit more comfortable with one another. Um, it's just unfortunate that sometimes, you know, some people just have no interest in doing that. So how we can get people more interested in having conversations and talking and getting to know other cultures other than their own um, is definitely a working progress. I, for me, um, I know during my undergraduate training, I worked in a very specific set of homes. And it wasn't until I went into a lower socioeconomic home that I realized how drastically different um, service delivery was. Um, even in having discussions with parents about their children, knowing that it had taken them years to get to the point where some of my other families started from. Um, so for me, I, I view it as, I think that we as a field need to step outside of our box, like yes, and I have a couple of friends that I love dearly um, that are therapists as well as VCBAs that will not go into certain areas and will not work with certain clients. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, if you're going to be a competent behavior analyst or a competent um, RBT, regardless of racial, ethnic, any of that stuff, you need to be able to implement these same procedures that we learn about across all settings. So an intervention in a house where a family is making $2.5 million a year is very different than a family that is currently receiving um, welfare or doesn't have those, those financial reasons that other people, other individuals would. So my thing with the fields, and I'm wondering what your uh, thoughts are in terms of culture and recognizing culture. Um, what does it take for behavior analysts to actually get to that point of exhibiting cultural, culturally humble behaviors or um, cultural awareness on a larger scale? Because a lot of times, you know, there are folks who quote uh, Hayes and Terramino's um, article and they say, you know, if behavior analytic principles are generally applicable, then why do we need you know, to consider culture. And there might be arguments on both sides that a human behavior is human behavior. Um, but when that happens, we're failing to realize that we interact with environments and people in various contexts, right? And so there is certain stimulus control that occurs between whatever um situation or environments that we go into, simple greetings, small talk, training. Um, if my SD is different in some type of way, then I might I might modify my behavior or shift it. And so my thing is that I would love for us to be able to work in our fields in a way that we are not creating a larger issue of assimilation, right? Like you have to come to our line of thinking, which ABA is westernized. You know, this field is very, it is what it is. It was established by white men. Um, we look at different things that are written. You can see 
cultural differences, right? In terms of, we can talk about, we, we talk a lot about the ethics code, but just in general, um, you can probably come up with different ways that you're like, that doesn't really register for for me as in a racial minority, or it might not register for other people for whatever group that they represent. So my question to you all is, how can we ensure that cultures are not being erased and pushed into a one-size-fits-all approach? I think the first thing we can do is ensure that everyone, regardless of who you are, who you love, where you went, all that other fun stuff, everybody should have a seat at the table. Um, I think that if we're going to make changes as a field regarding the field, our field, the leadership of our field must be represented at the table. Um, I'll use as an example, me and my mentor actually spoke about this. Um, I know that the, um, that ABA, it was a journal was just put out um, regarding special topics within the field, talking specifically about multicultural and diversity issues. Um, now, I don't know how everybody else feels about it, um, but they utilized a picture of Harriet Tubman on the cover. I remember this issue. Yeah. And I remember folks having issue with the issue. Um, I think one thing that I would have liked to see, I didn't have a, an issue with Harriet Tubman because who Harriet Tubman for me, who she represents is like a pretty strong figure, right? And so um, I personally didn't have a problem from that aspect, but one thing that would have been nice is to know why Harriet Tubman, like what is this symbolized for this issue? Uh, because for me, Absolutely. when I see Harriet Tubman, my mind starts filling in certain blanks based on her legacy and everything that she did. So to me, I see an extremely strong person to have on the front of any cover who's worthy of that. But I would, but I think it would, it might have uh, registered a little bit differently for folks that they would have known why Harriet Tubman up front, like, um, and, and to be once again, intentional, right? Um, when we start thinking about solutions, we have to be able to think those through um, versus just saying, okay, let's get somebody that represents this, uh, this group and let's just let Absolutely. this be it. And this will answer all the questions that people have. Like, no, we, we actually have more questions about it. So, um, but Sean, you were breaking up and I just wanted to give that little tid piece, tid fit while you were that. doing that, but continue on. No, I mean, I think that, although I think that Harriet Tubman was a, uh, was a great choice, I just think that if we're talking about multicultural issues in the field, it shouldn't just be one particular, like one particular race, one, especially with all the changes that are happening with the board, this is something that is so much larger than one particular individual. So I, that that was where my concern came in. Yeah, I was gonna um, kind of speak to that also, Sean, the concern with what is happening with the board and the international certification or lack thereof um, now or soon to be, just how are we supporting individuals worldwide who see the effectiveness of applied behavior analysis and who have started an education program to become certified, where is the BACB in assisting people throughout the world in either developing their international boards, um, since this, you know, the BACB is, is the one. So where are we with that and what are the next steps so that we can move, really truly move toward multiculturalism? 
if we're saying that people in other countries cannot become certified as behavior analysts or practice behavior analysis, then that to me is a big slap in the face to that. We're not a multicultural practice. We are not uh, people who believe that this science can be applied uh, across many different identity markers. So what are, what are we going to do about that? Uh, I would love to hear from Jada or Mika um, anything that you have to add. I will say that I did appreciate, I'm, I might be an outlier, I appreciate the BACB recognizing their limits. I think um, we have to be able to do that. We we really do. No matter how, you can have all the intentions in the world. I really want to serve. I want to be a multicultural unit. But if if we're not living up to that, you don't have the ability, whether it's a legal structure or not, we, we don't, and none of us know, right? Because we're not on the board. Um, but for me, I, I thought that that was a great move in the direction because I'm hoping that people that are local are able to be in those positions because they are the ones who know best, right? You, you cannot um, have a set of requirements over a specific group of folks if you're if you have no idea what's important to those individuals or how they operate in their space. And so I took it as a humble step in recognizing that we all have limitations and our field is definitely exposed limitations. Um, so I'm, I'm happy about that personally, but I know there has been a lot of uproar about that. So I'm an outlier, but Mika, it, it, or, oh, go ahead, Robin. Can I, can I say something to that really quick? It is definitely a humble step. And I agree with you in that this, this one body cannot, say that this is what what the standards should be for cultures across the world but how my my next question then is how is the BACB supporting individuals across the world since the behavior analyst certification board is the first to certify behavior analysis as a board so how are they supporting others in the, uh, internationally and i know that there are some things in place um, I'm just wondering how comprehensive and or supportive they are. I think those are all good questions. Um, so my initial question to you all was, um, you know, how can we ensure that cultures are not going to be erased or they're not getting erased with our work? Um, and like I said, I would love to hear from Jada or Mika if you all want to add anything to this part of the conversation. Um, yeah, so I think that, you know, we often misconstrue or misinterpret that word culture, right? So it's not just race. I think we also need to um, have an awareness that culture includes values, practices, and norms, right? So what, uh, what behaviors are reinforced in those communities? And so that can be going from one Black home to the next Black home. They can be completely different in culture. So I think as a field is first recognizing that we need to understand the values and the norms of the people that we're serving. And I think once we can do that, then we will begin to, um, to operate in cultural competence, right? I think that is a very misunderstood term right now. Um, people, especially when it's, hurt, it's spoken from us, right? People, when we say cultural competence, people assume that we're talking about race, right? Um, it's not just race. It's not just an issue of uh, ethnic diversity and uh, microaggressions and, and, and all of the other things that we've talked about. It's actually valuing the person. And I don't think we do enough of that. 
Yes, and that's so, so, so very true. I actually had a supervisor who I worked under as an RBT. Um, and it was just very interesting. His primary focus was animal behavior. He was very, very brilliant, but he did not really understand how to do applied work. Um, but he tried to train one of our clients who was an inner city youth. He tried to train him with an animal clicker, which I was thinking to myself, I don't think that that's going to be very effective given, you know, his environment and it's not it's probably not going to work needless to say long story short it didn't it was completely ineffective and i had to de develop like <laughs> an entire intervention to help this kid but it just goes to show you that going back to what um mika was saying we really do have to take a step back and learn about other cultures and their values and their environments because they are all different and in order for us to be able to effectively serve our communities that are different than we are, we have to understand them. I, I love the fact that you brought up clicker training. Um, I think it's, it reminds us that even some of the strategies that we employ might be different for the individuals. Like clicker training obviously has an evidence base, right? Um, and it, it's useful for some folks. And um, But given someone's history, whatever that might be, that might not be effective. And we need to be able to be flexible and say, and even though I use this uh, evidence base with someone else, um, this might not work in this context with this particular person. This is also another reason why I think it's important for us to have an evidence base that actually mentions culture so that we are seeing differences. Because if we're studying the same pool of folks um, there's no way for us to know if there's going to be a difference in acceptability, social validity um, for this particular uh, strategy or whatever it is. So I, um, that's a good point that you bring up. So I guess, you know, I would love to just open the floor up before we start to close this thing out um, and just give you all space. We've been talking for a little bit now. Is there anything else that you want to say to our audience members before we go? Um, I just want to thank you, Denisha and Aaron, for your podcast and for being like on the forefront and really trailblazing change with having these conversations, whether it be about race, gender, gender identity, it, whatever it, it's about. I appreciate it and um, just continue the good work. I'm happy to be a part of it and look forward to more conversations like this. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Appreciate that positive feedback. Thank you, Denisha and Erin, for again having us on your podcast. Um, it's definitely been a pleasure. I'm very happy that you all are bringing up a lot of these issues that exist in today's ABA world because a lot of the times, you know, they go unspoken or swept under the rug. And like I've said a few times already in a lot of my answers, a lot of these issues won't ever get resolved unless we have these discussions and unless, you know, we get people out of their comfort zones and addressing the fact that these issues do exist. So great work. I will definitely, definitely support you all in any way that I possibly can. And thanks again. I kind of feel like y'all feel like you may have to say thank you. You definitely don't have to. The pleasure is ours, <laughs> For holy <real>. and truly. <laughs> <That's a really laughs> <good power. laughs> well, 
I, I'm going to say thank you. So again, I have to say thank you. Um, like big ups to both you, Denisha and Aaron, um, for even allowing this kind of conversation to occur. Um, Y'all know I'm down for whatever. But I think for your for your listeners, I think that the biggest thing I think they could potentially take away is not to stop here to where, yes, it's great to listen to a podcast, but to take the things that you hear within this podcast and actually apply them into your professional life, your personal life, attend conferences, do research, lend a hand to others, because if it's a mammoth task to move the field forward, but if we all take a little step at a time, it will make it a lot easier. That's good. And and um, just to chime in for, for the listeners, because I think I started that um, with saying thank you first. So I modeled that for everybody and they just kind of followed along. But I think that one of the things that has been resounding that we've repeated throughout the podcast is the need for more research within the field. And if you are a listener and you are not a racial minority, which I don't even think that that exists much anymore for people of color. We're not the racial minority, but if you're not black or Hispanic, or uh, if you're white partner with someone else who is in the field that, you know, and begin to do that research. And the reason why I say partner is because we do want to make sure that we are giving voice to people who may not have voice and building power with people who may not have the same sort of power that you might have. Awesome. Well, I do want us to wrap up and Mika, now that you're back, if you have anything else that you would like to say to the audience members, I will give you the floor and then we'll take this on out of here. Sure. Um, I'm not quite sure what you ca- what you caught, but um, you know, I, I just want to make sure that we're challenging your audience as well as ourselves to um, to move in those spaces that make us feel uncomfortable, um, because there's not going to be an awareness nor a change in this space in this these concepts of cultural competence and diversity and inclusion and social justice unless we talk about them unless we're in a space where that that is the conversation. Um, so I hope that your audience shares this with their friends, um, you know, just so that they have a new perspective and, um, you know, take action, as Sean said. Um, don't just hear this this conversation and say, oh, well, that was great. Now I now I'm socially competent. I'm woke now. No, we'll do something with that. Um, apply these in, in your, your work settings as well as in your personal lives. Awesome. So one of the things that I wanted you all to talk to our audience members about tonight were any resources, things that you read or things that you know might be useful to people doing the work because this is work. Um, but I would love for you all to share that with us um, after the podcast and we can put it in our show notes. Um, and yeah, so Aaron, do you have any homework that you want to give our listeners tonight? Um, gosh. Okay. So throughout this entire conversation, like I, I just listened, there were so many, I guess the terms like acronyms, or there's a lot of terminology that you all were using that I had no idea what it was. And if there's a, like for me, I just Googled it and you can learn so much just like, you know, you all were saying, um, I think Jada in the beginning, you said 
PWI and then Sean, you said HBCU and it just rattled off so fast. And I was like, wait a minute, what do those mean? And so I didn't know. Google it, find out, learn about, learn about what that is and what value that holds. Um, so for me, I, I got, I don't know. I just added to my vocabulary tonight. But that was, that was awesome. So, um, but I think that's, that for me is like, if you hear something you don't, you don't know, or it's different or you don't understand, just don't keep going, figure that out. Like dive into that. It's like that space where it's uncomfortable and you're like, Hmm, or it makes you think like, figure that out, stop there and, and dive into that a little bit. So, um, so yeah, that, I don't know. Is that sufficient for homework? That is great homework. No, that's perfect. Um, And also, if you are on our Instagram page, you should see that we've been sharing a Black History Month challenge that is done by Rachel Cargill, which is an author who talks about uh, systemic oppression, specifically uh, racial oppression in this country. And she um, is definitely a great resource. But right now she is creating prompts for people to Google. That's all you have to do. Use your Google. And so far we have um, learned so much in just these 11 days. We actually didn't post today, but it's going to be posted before this show comes out. I would say take part in the, the prompt challenge. If you are missing the ones that we put up each day, go to Rachel Cargill's page and do those prompts. Because as she says, and so many people have said, Black history is American history. So that could be researches. I mean, that could be your homework as well. And with that being said, we just want to thank everyone for listening. And thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. Stay tuned for the next next show. Yeah. Stay tuned for the next show. We got to get that down better. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, beautiful humans. Hey, it's Denisha and Erin. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today.